Welcome again to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. Let's start with the pronunciation. Gregonach. The pronunciation of Welsh is always on the penultimate syllable, so it's Gregonach. A little bit like the Italian, Gregonach. Not um, Greginog, which not, is what you might... Greginog or Greginog or anything like that. G-Y-N is always pronounced gun, so it's Greginog, Greginog. And it, as a place, it's, it's Grieg could be a word for heather. Nog is a place name, so you could say it was a place of the heather originally. But it take, Gregonog is the name of a house. And that's and where it state. takes its name from? That's where it takes its name from. I see. And it's quite a spectacular house, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, like, it's actually a folly. The whole thing looks like a, a timber frame building, which is very typical in mid-Wales, but in fact this one is concrete rendering painted. It's black and white. It looks almost Elizabethan, doesn't it? Well, it does, it, but it's, that's what it's modelled on. Right. But it's all concrete, painted black and white. It's a folly. It's a fake. And whose folly was it? It was the Hanbury Tracys, I believe. The history of Gregonog is well, well documented. And there's been a house there since the 12th century, I believe. Mm-hmm. It goes a long way back. It's been a place, a homestead, for a long, long, long time. And over the years, of course, houses have been rebuilt and added to, and it's changed. The Gregonog Press, which is what you want to know about, came about when the Davies sisters, Gwendolyn and Margaret Davies, bought it in around about C1920, thereabouts. Yeah, the press started in 22, I think. 22, 23 is when they first had this idea. And these were wealthy uh, daughters of some... Their grandfather had made a fortune in coal mining, shipbuilding, and they they felt during the, the First World War that they could they could offer something to the, the soldiers and the poor poor veterans from the, the war there and they would establish something that we would today call perhaps an arts and crafts centre, an arts centre. Mm-hmm. And they tried out all sorts of different things. They investigated the, the ceramics, the pottery, got all clay around but wasn't found suitable. They thought about furniture making, but couldn't find uh, craftsmen with enough skill locally to to do what they wanted. And they landed up with the the notion of a printing press. They thought they would make books. They would invite veterans to to use yes, come in was, and the idea was to provide a sort of rehabilitation center, right? Therapy, sort of therapy. Yeah. Okay, you know, come to the country. And this Grugenog stands in eight hundred acres of beautiful parkland. That's a, it's a wonderful it's a objective, a isn't place. it? I mean, yeah, they were great philanthropists. Plus, they had a lot of money. And at that time, I think they each inherited around a million pounds, which in those days was substantial. Yeah. And they'd begun collecting paintings. And they had one of the first, one of the most important collections of European Impressionist paintings at the time. And in Gregonog used to hang Monets and Pissarros and Renoirs. That was their eye, their their taste, or their advisors. Jones, wasn't there Jones, an advisor of theirs? Jones was an advisor on the press. On the press, okay. And they were friendly with, through Jones, with all the literary figures and prime ministers would go and stay there. Okay. They were they were well connected. So, continuing on, then, what what are some of the more interesting books that they would have published? Because they went from twenty two to about forty. Two or thereabouts, right? Nineteen twenty-three. Cover the wasp, I severed the meal now. Die tree. Can a chwiorith Davis 
What was that? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I used to begin my lectures in Welsh about the, the history of the, the press. The press was established in 1923 by the Davy sisters. Cafodd a wask. Wask is, gwask is the Welsh word for press. You have to pronounce that G on the end, otherwise you refer to the, the servant, the manservant or the slave. So you have to say gwask, gurganog, which is, uh, when I joined the press, that's what it was called, was gwask, gurganog. The press became known for publishing, as did many of its contemporaries, contemporary presses at the time, Golden mm-hmm. Cockerel, for example, Ashendine, and so on, publishing fine books in limited editions, and particularly in Gregonok's case of presenting, say, ten copies of each edition in a fine binding. And Gregonok was unusual in that every stage of operation from the typesetting through to the printing and the binding took place under the same roof. And the Davis sisters brought people in, and it began with, with uh, uh, Maynard and Bray, Robert Ashwin Maynard and Bray there, who were sent off to art school to learn something about printing and all these various things. And then they would be assisted by these veterans? No, the veterans never never really came into it. it oh, they didn't? It never happened. Were they there, at least? No, or they, they, they no. never, never... That was their goal, or they wanted that to happen, but it never did? Never, no, it never did. And instead, they, they had the, the press. The one thing that did continue was a music festival, and that's still go, going on today, that's been revived. They, were the, they had a literary festival and a music festival, and the music festival is still going. So they, you say they had everything under one roof, and including they had their own, uh, their own type? They had their own monotype casters, and remember at this time in the 1920s, the monotype corporation was in its heyday. It was yeah. Stanley Morrison was respond- and Beatrice Ward responsible for, for pioneering all these revival typefaces yeah. and yeah. hot metal. And Gregonog was using them before. Perpetua, for example, before the Italic had even been uh, released. And they were using all the Garamonds and the Bembos and the Baskervilles that were brand new. It was the latest available technology. Yeah. So they had what a, a wonderful com- new or, or choice, wasn't there? Well, there was. They had compositors and they had printers. And, of course, they appointed the first bookbinders there. And eventually it was a man called George Fisher who came and was responsible for some quite remarkable gold-tooled bindings. Like which ones, for example? Do you have any uh, favourites? I do, and if I could show you them, but they're in that book underneath the tape recorder. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you, do you, uh, we can have a look at that. What are the names of them? Do, you, do, you, do there any names come to mind? Well, they do, and, and the, the ones that I, uh, I find particularly interesting are those on books that were uh, by Blair Hugh Stanton, uh, who is someone who I want to talk to you about as well. But George Fisher himself didn't really design many of the bindings. He was just the binder. Craftsman. He was the craftsman. And as well, John Mason, the younger John Mason, the son of John Henry Mason, who had been the compositor at the Dove's Press, was a binder and had worked in the bindery at Grigamag there as well. And that was interesting. But the, everything was done under the one roof, which made it quite unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you'd be able to... Co- I, I, I gather you'd be able to, to think through the entire thing uh, as, a, as a unified process, which would make it that much better. Absolutely, yeah. And that's, that's very true. Uh, when I, I went there, that's one of the things that I felt that gave us an, an edge, an advantage, was the fact that you could 
could do everything all together and you could you could choose the type based on a, a particular kind of paper and select the binding that would complement as opposed to what the, the typical process would be to sort of ship it out send it out yes. and get there you know different takes on the same piece of work Yes. <laughs> right. Well, the the Davis sisters, of course, had this idea, and they appointed a board of directors, advisors, literary advisors. You mentioned Jones. I, I'm trying to remember his first name. Is it George Jones? What, who's the, who's this book by? This is Doris Harrop's book, The Gregonite Press, that was published by the private library. In uh, 1980. Good resource? It's a very good resource, and it, it tells the, the wonderful story that is the Gurganog Press. It's essentially the story of the different people who were appointed as controllers, not financial controllers, but more like ma- the managing artistic, artistic directors. Yeah, it's kind of an odd title, press. isn't it? Who chose that title, I wonder? I don't know. But you're right. That I mean, down the line, that's that's what you were. That's what I was. I was called the controller. Essentially, Bray Maynard and Bray, who learned about printing and did also illustrate some of the books with their own wood engravings, and they designed the books. They were, you can see where they learned from and who they learned from and what book, other books they looked at and what influenced them. The early Gurganog books have, have got all the. Um, Trademarks of Ashendine, but on a smaller scale, a little cruder, perhaps, we say. Uh, they were having paper made for them as well, handmade paper. They never made their own paper. What then distinguishes uh, it from other presses than design? Well, well, I think the fact that they were, for the most part, produced in-house mm-hmm. makes them interesting. And that small proportion had a special a deluxe binding on it. It's the deluxe binding that really make the book spectacular. If you look at the ordinary editions, and this is a, a copy of Erwand by Samuel Butler, which is bound in a local sheepskin, because there are something like, as you know, 10 million sheep. Sheep in Wales, and only three million people. There's a lot of sheepskin to be had. It's not very durable. But even so, I think that they stamped it binding with a Gurganog. Ah, uh, yes. Gurganog press bindery there. They were like very nicely printed trade books. Some of them. Mm-hmm. The ones that printed on handmade papers are more like a traditional private press book. They catered to both markets then. Well, they were producing a lot of these books. Mm. The editions are quite large. Um, that's to say, not like glorified trade books, that's an insult. But the yeah, they, they remind me a bit of the non-such. Exactly. And it's 300 copies. That's a reasonable edition. It's a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, of course, were publishing in Welsh and in English, which gave them a unique characteristic. But it was the fact that they were given these beautiful bindings by George Fisher and his team in the boundary there that makes them, in my mind, stand out. If you look at a correct collection of Gregonokline bindings, they are quite simply. And that's because the, the tooling on them, mm-hmm. primarily? Primarily, especially the gold tooling. And as I said, the history of the press corresponds to the different tenures of the controllers, Maynard and Bray, and then Hugh Stanton and William McCants, and then you get Lloyd Haberley, and then... Oh, I've forgotten. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Look a, at that. James Wardrop. 
That's it. And again, yeah, each one of them put their own yep. stamp on. And really, from the time Hugh Stanton went down, I think in 1930 and left in 1933 or thereabouts, Lloyd Hadley wasn't a resident there, nor was James Wardrop, really. And that changed the, the feel of the books. Hugh Stanton came the time when they were working on other books, and he was left to his own devices initially and, and produced something, produced a book called The Lover's Songbook, a collection of poems by W.H. Davies. Mm. Which he illustrated with his little wood engravings, which they uh, they never published. You can read the account in here that these little engravings of little figures rolling around in bed were thought to be a little by the risque. Davis sisters, Calvinistic Methodists, remember, were rather worried about these things, and they <laughs> sought the advice of Stanley Morrison, who was one of their advisors, and he wrote back to them and said, "Well, the whole thing is totally unorthodox, and then he said, besides which, the verse are too feeble for words." <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's a double, double condemnation. Yeah, it's funny though the the private presses have a somewhat of a reputation of being a bit risque and showing nipples and breasts and such, don't they? Well, certainly during Hugh Stanton's time there, yeah. And they could get away with it because it was art, exactly. But they couldn't get it past the sisters. Yeah. I mean, See, with, with Hugh Stanton, he was this. He was a young fellow in his thirties. Then he came there, and he designed this book all by himself. And not only was he illustrating, but he was designing in the layout for the typesetting, and he was rearranging the lines of the poems. Okay. There's another thing which upset Morrison. He said, you, know, you don't really do that. But it's, it's, in, it's in a letter from Blair Hugh Stanton to some bibliographer that W.H. Davis himself did not mind what he was doing to it, which is, which is interesting. <laughs> he came at a time when the, the market was, was really drying up. Uh, the fine books were no longer... We're getting into the Depression, We're getting into the Depression yeah. era. And yeah. what they did was choose books with more illustrations because they were paying him a retainer and less text. And two of my favourite books to come from the old press were illustrated by Blair Stanton with fantastic wood engravings. And that was The Revelation of St. John and The Lamentations of Jeremiah. And they're both large folios, quite, quite slim. And... Yeah. Affordable? Packed full of uh, wood engravings. Affordable today? Yeah. Sure. Two yeah. or three hundred bucks? Five hundred? A little bit more than that. But Especially if you wanted a, if you wanted a deluxe, you'll have to pay more than that. But fabulous things. Fabulous because, because of, again, the craftsmanship, the workmanship, the combination of illustration and text. For me, and I'll tell you what, what makes them really interesting is that Hugh Stanton was not only illustrating the books, but he was designing them. Okay. So he was doing the typographical, typographical layout, illustrating them, prescribing the, the typeface, the initial letters, which he was also engraving. Someone had given him, a, or he'd found a, a lettering alphabet that Mardestag had published at the Oshina Bodoni, the Mollius alphabet, and he based his lettering on this. And so he has some fabulous initial letters in a setting of Baskerville and using um, blues and red inks. And it's printed on this, this uh, smooth Jap vellum, as you stand and call it, gampy paper. It's a coordinated The binding was designed by him as well. So the right. whole thing was a, a complete package, and that made, makes them quite unique. It's not somebody else putting a binding on somebody else's book, someone designing a book from start to finish. To the point as well where Hugh Stanton would be 
instrumental making sure that the ink that was used was mixed to the, the German recipe that was necessary to print his extraordinarily fine detailed engravings, which of course raised a few eyebrows because they were many of them for the most part were definitely draped nudes, men and women. What did your sisters have to say about that then? Well, I don't, I don't know. I guess it got I through. It got through then. Yes, what did they say? I know the re- one of the reviews at the time said, I think it was in the Observer newspaper, said, there is something in the wild sanity of these engravings that reflects the artist's mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> he had a reputation. And because he, he came at a time to Gurganov with his, with his wife, who was Gertrude Hermes, another wood engraver, and William McCants, who was the controller, Hugh Stanton had been offered the job as controller, didn't want it, he wanted to be the artist, didn't want the administrative responsibility, managerial mm-hmm. responsibility. William McCants was also an engraver, but not as good as his wife, who was Agnes Miller Parker, who was uh, a superb engraver. And they published, during the time that these four artists were there, a great number of books with fabulous wood engravings and particularly my favourites again are these with engravings by Agnes Miller Parker and they were the Aesop's Fables this is we've jumped ahead here we've jumped ahead but okay the engravings in here were printed for the Gruganog edition of Aesop okay and that would have been for their time that was their time which is which is when 33 any other books uh, stand out for you that's a gorgeous one. That, that's yeah. what this is. Well, I don't want to jump around too much, but but this is something that you produced, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get to that, anything else in the thirties? I think there's certainly from each era. There's there's two or three books which are great. I think from the first period, there's a uh, Life of Saint David is a wonderful little book, especially in its full leather binding. The two Hugh Stanton ones. And the, the Aesop of favourites, then Bray, well, sorry, Lloyd Havley comes along, and I'm afraid to say that, I know Lloyd is an American, <laughs> we're in America, and he, he was passionate about what he did, yeah. but he, his, he didn't have the same skills that George Fisher in the bindery did, or the same typographical sensitivity as even Hugh Stanton or other people didn't. I think the books are a little clumsy that that he produced uh, during his time there. I think the ones there's the Cyropedia, which I think he did, Cyropedia, which is quite a grand book, a big book, and there's a lot of books there. That James Wardrop, who was the last person to be the controller there, produced a History of Saint Louis, which is a very grand book, printed mm. on handmade paper again and. That looks like something out of the Dove's Press. Yeah, it, was rever- it echoes the old, older traditions. And then they went on to do a book with them. Reynolds Stone's engravings, a small, tiny little thing. But that's more in the non-such tradition. Mm-hmm. There's the Life of St. David in its... There's the Erewhon in its, its special binding by Hugh Stanton. And these parallel lines, gold parallel tooling quite remarkable but you know I was rummaging around in the National Library of Wales one day and the bindery there found in one of the boxes a set of brass blocks binders are cunning the whole thing was blocked before it was put on the on the book text block if you like and these are Hugh Stanton's 
bindings. designs for the special bindings. Dark blue, heavy grain Levant Morocco, and that's one by George Fisher, which is really quite nice. So, 1942, they stop operations. 43, I think. 43. And then what happens? It lies in mothballs until the 1970s. The University of Wales received Gurganag as a bequest, turned it into a conference centre. The Davies collections of paintings went on to form the core of the National Museum of Wales. Fabulous collection. The university decided that uh, all the dust that was gathering on the printing equipment could perhaps be dusted off. And the person who was in charge of Gruganog, the warden of Gruganog, was a man called uh, Glyn Tegar Hughes, was interested in printing and books. And uh, they sponsored a fellowship. This would have been when? This is 1974, 1974, thereabouts. Then let's just say the 1970s. Sure. And and when did you come uh, become the controller? 1985. I visited Gurganog, I think 1984. And I went there for a conference, a printing history conference. I can remember arriving in a torrential downpour. And you know, when I was a student. Uh, at college, I asked Hugh Stanton... Because he was a teacher of yours, was he? He was a teacher of mine, and the, more than that, he was a, a mentor, really, and, and that he asked me to go and print for him at his home in Manning Tree in Essex, where I learned a good deal more, not only about printing, but about living as well. And uh, I asked him what, what he could remember about Gurgamog, and the two things he said to me was, you know, three years of bloody rain... <laughs> Talking about my first visit right. in a torrential downpour, it brought that to mind. It was dark, very dark in Wales, and I visited there. And we, of course, a highlight of any visit, any conference, was a visit to the press, which was had been re-established and reopened. And Eric G was there as the controller, and David Vickers was the the compositor and printer. Well, they were both printing, so two of them were printing books again. And we got an opportunity to visit the press, as it had been in the 1930s. And it was, Nigel, like walking into the Sistine Chapel. For someone like me, a young fellow, who'd been begun printing books on the hand press in Newcastle, beginning to learn about the private presses and knew a little about them and had seen a number of these books, to go to the place that was actually still in operation. Yeah, with the same equipment. The same equipment had not changed much at all. It seemed still smell. It smelt of it. Uh, history, everything was redolent of creativity, and, and the bindery was as it was, as it had been, but wasn't being used. So it's exciting, obviously. Yeah, it was exactly as it was. And the opportunity came up? And that was in, I think, September or thereabouts, and the following year, the friend who I'd been there with said, uh, hey, David, they're, they're looking for a controller, Eric G is retiring. Oh, God, that was like 26, 27, I uh, no, in late 85, yeah, so I was... More like uh, 32, 33. 32, I was in my 30s. I'm at the same age as you standing right there. I thought, well, I can't take over the, the controllership of the great, revered Gruganog Press. But by this time, I'd, um, I'd learned a good deal about printing, bookbinding, publishing, through doing my own books. And You had your own uh, press? I had my own press, I was publishing, I got six or seven books into my belt, and 
I'd been keen to learn about printing and bookbinding and the history of printing and bookbinding and wasn't shy in showing my work to the leading practitioners. So by this time I'd already met um, Vivian Riddler, who was printed to the University Press at the time. I'd shown him my books. I'd been to visit Sandy Cockrell, shown him my books and with great temerity and learned something on Roger Powell, all these great folks. And I'd also gone and shown John Ryder my works and these folks encouraged me. Get a pretty good network. Yeah, and as it turns out, I, I told John Ryder about this Gruganog opportunity. He said, well, you should go for it. And one of my um, other tutors at, at Central School, Ian Mortimer, who was a well, very well-respected printer and designer, I think supported my application. I was also, uh, I was the, at the time, the honorary printer to the Newcastle Imprint Club, which is an informal group of bibliophiles. Okay. And I used to have great fun printing for pleasure in the John uh, Ryder sense, printing keepsakes, mm-hmm. dinner menus for our informal meetings. And the Newcastle Imprint Club was going to be called the Half Crown Club, like the Double Crown Club, but a lesser, a lesser yes. importance. Um, was run by a man called Peter Isaac, who was a, a civil engineer professor of civil engineering, but with a great interest in printing history and was a great collector of William Davidson of Annick in particular and Buick and became a supporter of mine and a patron, a collector if you like, and he supported my application and lo and behold I got off with the job and uh, moved to Wales and suddenly found that the road signs were bilingual and <laughs> 20% of the population spoke Welsh, I want to say. So that's the question. How did the environment affect you, the people, the landscape, the climate? Well, I used to talk a lot about I used to travel around all over the country and in America too, talking about the history of the Gregonard Press. And I'd always start with a, a slide showing the British Isles and a little bit on the west coast, uh, the western side of Britain, that is Wales. The, Wales itself is a country about the size of Massachusetts. You can relate to it. It's quite small. And the population there at the time, it's around about 3 million. But there are 10 million sheep. Mm. Now you can imagine, 10 million sheep, that's got to have some... It's like dandruff. Dotted on the... Mm. In the spring, all these lambs are out there. And it's hilly, and there's North Wales and there's South Wales. And we were in Mid-Wales, that's where Grugganog is. Moindia, Maldwin, the rolling hills of Montgomeryshire. It was very, very pretty. It's not spo- spoiled at all by industry. Or The new town, the nearest town to Grugganog, was uh, in the 19th century famous for its woolen mills. Um, and that's all. There's no heavy industry there. Not like in South Wales. Mm-hmm. Or even yeah. North Wales with the slate mining. Or No, so it's, it's unspoiled and it's beautiful. And did that, uh, how did that manifest itself in the work that you did? Did you have sort of a, a vision for, uh, for what you were doing? Uh, As the controller of the press, I was responsible not for only for designing the books, but also for printing the books. Uh, occasionally I would illustrate one or two. Um, I was also responsible for um, editing, working with the illustrators, the authors, editors. You asked about the landscape. There was one occasion where I was called upon to look for an illustration decided that I would have a go at it too so I did a, mm-hmm. did a line of cut which did, was hand coloured in the, in the actual edition 
What, what edition was that? That was a little book called Dag Sonnet, Ten Sonnets by T.H. Parry Williams. So how many books did you produce while you were there, and how long were you there for? Good question. Well, I went in 85 and left in 97, so... 12 years. 12 years. And how many books would have been I'm not sure. You'd have coming to look, at, look at the... Okay. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't counted them. Okay. What are you proudest of? Do you have something that you'll always be most proud of? Yes, I do. I'm... Yes, it's a book which introduced me to America, really. It's an edition of Walter Whitman. Oh. And it should be on the shelf. Let's see. And the, the book, I won a number of uh, awards and book design awards. Got to the point where it was embarrassing. I, I won so many that I stopped submitting them. This was the British Book Design and Publication Awards. I won the limited edition category three years in a row, and I thought I should let someone else have it. <laughs> have a chance right but the the, the book which I won the Felice Felice Feliciano for was the Geraldus Cambrensis which was a, a very handsome book but the book that I enjoyed doing the most was this book of Walt Whitman poetry called Wrenching Times and it's in a quarter leather binding which I designed too. The civil, it's Civil War poetry, essentially, so we've got to play on the colours there. Oh, yes, and I love the way you've got a kind of a ragged edge mm-hmm. on this. And uh, this is Indian paper, which is ragged, the rough and the smooth, and the red and the blue. Oh, wow. It's yeah. illustrated with, with wood engravings. Your wood engravings? Not my wood engravings, no. I went to New York first in 1990 to the first international conference of the book art and saw there the, the many, many slides of wood engravings by a man called Gaylord Shanelak. Ah, yes, he's not too far from here. He's not too far from here at all. Is it Wisconsin? Yes, yeah. Stockholm, Wisconsin. And we met up there and I said to him, we're working on this book, and by this time Barry Moser had declined to illustrate this edition. So I was looking for an artist, looking for an illustrator, and said, what about coming to Wales? And he said, uh, gee, I don't know. I don't think he'd even heard of Wales, let alone Grigonog at the time. And the next day he came back and he said, OK. And that following year, he came out... Because you want, you want it produced there. Yeah, I said, yeah. come to Wales, come, come out and spend six months. We got, a, we got a, a grant. And he came out. And for me, it recreated... The atmosphere that must have existed in the 1930s where the book was being made entirely in-house, mm-hmm. illustrated there, designed there, printed there, and bound there. These are very colourful. They are. What specifically do the poems address then? They're Civil War poems. They're the poems from drums, drum taps. And by this time I'd visited Shanalek, who was living in Minneapolis mm-hmm. at the time, but setting up his home in Wisconsin there. And I got to see for the first time these wide American skies and mm. I wanted to see some of that in, in here, in yeah. this book. And we created this book. And so why is it, again, why is it that you're proudest of this? Because, as I say, it's, it's of a piece. It all came together. It came together exactly as you wanted it to. Yeah. I, it, I would do it differently where I had to do it again. And the challenge with, with Whitman is the lines are so darn long. And we... <laughs> Poetry is difficult. We we went through various various ramifications before we ended up with this this solution. It's so cold. I can't turn the pages. Yeah. 
uh, as you say, so many big, big skies. Yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was a great, a great project, and uh, that's interesting that it it uh, it's because it it came together exactly as you had wanted it to. That's why you're. It evolved. I don't. I, I think with all these books, they don't. And that's the difference between a commercial um, publisher, perhaps, who doesn't have the beauty of being able to tinker with things as they go along. They've got to decide, come up with a design decision, and that's it. Yeah. It gets printed. You can't change your mind halfway through. And with this, which is letterpress printing from metal type, you'd actually change things on the, on the press. Mm-hmm. Just the layout. Right? The layout of it, yeah. if, if you wanted. And if the binding wasn't working out, you could change, change that. Not the most economic way of doing things. No, no, but if you've got the money to do it and the time and the talent. And the the great thing about working at Dutamas was we were working in a tradition which had always used the finest and the best materials and no expense spared, so I was able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Finally, um, where's the press now, today? Is it, uh, I mean, it's functioning, I, I, I know, but uh, no, that's the main question, I guess. I don't know if it is functioning. Oh, the okay. last I heard was that it had been mothballed. Okay. Although, having said that, there was a rumour at this year's Oxford Fine Press Book Fair that somebody was doing something about uh, uh, reopening it. Like, is there what's there right now? Is it like can can a literary tourist go there and and see the presses and 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 get a you know look at some of the books that's come off it over the years? Or I believe you can. It's a conference center, and you could you could organize a group of literary tourists go and have a conference there. It's a nice place to visit, but don't drink the water. So I've heard. Yes. If any final uh, thoughts on the press and. And speaking of more recently, what are you, what you're doing? What are you doing right now? Well, when I left Grigonog, I, I suppose it, by way of therapy, I turned to what I was qualified to do. The only thing I'm qualified to do, if you like, is paint. I went to art college and a degree in fine art painting. And so it, by more way of therapy, I think, I, I began painting. That rekindled the, the notion that I should really try, if could, to make a living out of being an artist which is difficult. I continued to make books, and it wasn't long before I was back on my feet again and, and printing books on my own behalf and publishing them again. And then I felt I should write about the publishing of these books, and I produced this book called Inside the Book, which, which is all about making books. Your experience of how to make books? Yeah. Is it kind of a how-to or more of a memoir? It's, more, it's a how-to book. The idea is that it encourages people to, to make books. But anybody with an idea can develop that idea and can make a book even with just a piece of pencil, a pencil and a piece of paper. But if they wanted to, they could also print it. They could also illustrate it. They could also bind it. But if they were going to offer it for sale, what they were doing is publishing. So I also talk about publishing. In today's world, uh, the book arts. There are many, many book artists who've got no idea about publishing. And I felt this was important to... to Connect the two, right? Connect the two and address to this issue. And I will be giving a workshop in Maine this coming next, next year, and a week-long workshop on just this subject, making books and 
publishing as, as well, every aspect of it. Where's that? At the main media workshops in Rockport, Maine. When I left Guggenlock there, I was doing all these things, printing books, and, and I produced this book called Inside the Book, and then for a long time, Shanalek, Gaylord Shanalek and I have been trying to produce a sequel, if you like, do another book project together. A sequel to your Walt to Whitman? The, to the Walt Whitman. Okay. And one day we shared rooms at book fairs and all over the place, and one year at an open old book fair, we were talking about this, and I said, I want to do something about the Missouri. I'd seen the movie, The Missouri Breaks, and I, I felt something interesting there. He said, what about Lewis and Clark? I said, who the, who the hell is Lewis and Clark? <laughs> okay. yeah, I was an, I'm an English. Yeah, kid. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I did it. the following day, as it happened, or the, a week later, I would go back and stay with him at his home in Wisconsin, and we went on a road trip down to Iowa, and I went and bought all the Lewis and Clark books I could find, read about it, read them. Pretty collectible stuff, too, I think. Oh, yes, I, I know I can tell you who's got all this stuff, too. That's another story. But the, the thing was, I, I thought, this is interesting. But it was, the, it was the year before, two years before, 2006, when everybody was doing Lewis and Clark books. So that was a, that fell on its feet. But what we did decide to do, and uh, it's quite amusing, really, we decided to publish our email correspondence over the course of two years. Hmm. And we produced a book called Ink on the Elbow. It's become something of a, an important book of its kind. And what? It's an exchange of ideas on book, books and publishing? And it's all about making books. Ah. From, from, 19, uh, from 2002, from four years, we, ah, I love it. we were embracing email, and it was just becoming fashionable. Conversations between David Esselmont and Gaylord Shanalak. And what we did was edit our email, mm. and I designed and printed this book in Wales. Well, when was that? 2002. In Wales? Mm-hmm. Why did you do that in Wales? Well, that's where I was living. Okay. 2003 it was published. Sorry. Oh, look. And it's got tipping. pages in from one of my wood engravings from way back when. And again, it's just what kind of musings on. It's all about making books. Okay. We were both. I was making inside the book during the course of this. In fact, I was writing inside the book. Gaylord was working on three or four other books at the time. I've illustrated it with my lino cuts of his farm and family in Wisconsin, where mm-hmm. I would go and visit each year. Mm-hmm. That old trap. Old trap there. Oh, yeah, you've even got a photograph. This is where I was living at the time. It was Gaylord and his tractor. And he would come and visit me, and he did an, a huge panoramic, engra- panoramic engraving of the little house I just showed you there mm-hmm. at my workshop in Mid-Wales. So, really, it, it, you're showing what people could do if they, if they had an idea like you had. Sure. I mean, you it's can, you a can magnificent make... production, but it's... It just as you said, right? It's like we had this idea to make yeah. a book, and look, and here it is. And here it is, and there's examples of this. There's the New York book which Gaylord did, which I'm about to bind two copies of, uh, hmm. and so on. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. 
And this, again, we each bound, there were 200 copies, and we each bound 100. And I did um, 10 in a special binding. My copy, which I've just sold, actually, which is currently out there, I think, on the market for $6,000. Okay. So it's, That's good. Um, That's good. Talking of value and things, I was recently in England, in Northumberland, looking at a, a book dealer's there, and you can buy four of my Buick books now. If you have... Um, it's sixteen hundred pounds, a few, few thousand dollars to spare. Nice copies too, good condition. So, so your works, your works are clearly collectible, and the market is is good for them. Well, I like to think so. The, the, I have books in collections, institutional and private, across America, Europe, and Australia, and Santiago. Isn't as good as anywhere else. They're all over the place. My archive uh, is held by the University of Iowa up to 2005. That's in Iowa City. Iowa City, City. yeah. So another reason to visit uh, there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good place to go for many and, reasons. And how can people uh, buy your books then? You can buy them online. You can go to my website and look at these books, or you can go to book dealers and them. You sometimes find them. The older ones you'll find it. These days, of course, you know, you can search online and find but what, all these. what does you the best? Going to your website and buying them directly from your website? Of course, yeah. And what is your website? Solmentes.com. S-O-L-M-E-N-T-E-S. And if, uh, if you like uh, anagrams, as does Garrison Keeler, who I once showed my, gave my business card to. We spent some time together in a, an airport lounge. He looked at my business card, Solmentes, he said, uh, what's that mean? Sun mines? It's my press name. Yeah. And I had to come up with a press name because of the book, inside the book, which I wrote, couldn't, my imprint used to be David Asselman. Well, I can't have David Asselman, <laughs> the author, yeah. illustrated, printed, and published by David Asselman. So I came up with Solmentes, which, as I told Garrison Keeler, was, it's an anagram of Asselman. Uh-huh. Sounds very grand, but it's simply, it's simply an anagram. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, your experiences with the, the Greg Greganog. Greganog. Greganog, and uh, allowing me into your uh, rather chilly but fascinating well, studio. I wish I could have given you some of my prize-winning chili, which is, is the subject of my most recent book, which we haven't even touched on. But, uh, no. Let's quickly touch on that. Then. Quickly, we can touch on that. Two years ago, I won a, a chili cook-off across the field. I thought it was pizza that you were uh, known no, for. No, no, pizza and chili and chili as well. It might well be the subject of the next book. But two years ago, I won a, a chili cook-off, would you believe it, just across the fields here at our local winery. And so taken by it was either I decided to turn the recipe for a number of reasons into a book. Um, you know who should know about this book is Don Lindgren at uh, Rabelais, Rabelais Books. He specializes in cookbooks and really? antiquarian cookbooks too. So, And he's in Maine. He's in Alfred, just outside of Portland. Yeah, kidding. No. Strange things are pointing toward me towards Maine. The planets are aligning. Uh, you should know about this for sure. But anyway, the, this is the deluxe uh, binding, gorgeous, which yeah. is a, a white alum-toured pigskin with right. a painting of a bowl of chili 
On the front there. Oh, wow. I wanted it to look like a linen tablecloth. Tablecloth, yeah. yeah. Very, very nice. Thank you. I really wanted to do something rough and ruddy and visceral and... and tasty. And, and tasty. <laughs> when I uh, yeah. moved to America, we lived in Minneapolis, and I printed two books up there, quite substantial books, a collection of Wordsworth poems, a prelude, and uh, a fantastic commission, which there are only 32 copies of by the watchmaker, called George Daniels. And I printed those on the Heidelberg cylinder, you know, quite substantial, fabulous books, I thought. Before I move the press down here to Iowa, I've got to build a workshop. Well, the long and short of it is that I had a commission which fell through, which meant that I had to sell that Heidelberg and it never found its way down to Iowa. And so to continue making books, I thought, well, I, I can do woodcuts. And I thought, well, I'll do these vigorous woodcuts. I'd seen some marvellous, spectacular printing by a friend of mine, Russell Moret, here in the studio just recently. Just after I won this chili cook off, I gave him some chili. He likes my chili. They had it for breakfast, too. <laughs> when he left, I thought, I, I know what my book's going to be. It's going to be the recipe. And I got rather carried away. And the secret here is there's no chili powder. It's all made entirely from scratch. Hmm. From toasting the ancho chilies to making a stock, toasting the cumin, and this is the stock which you put in there, too. You do everything from scratch. Finding your beef... Mar mar grinding it and marinating it and, and so on. Yes, so you're, really, you're just sort of taking us through the whole process. Absolutely, and I've become as passionate about cooking and, uh, as I have about books and printing. You can, you're combining two passions here. The curious thing, Nigel, is I seem to have hit on a niche market. Like a real, what, there's a real Food. interest in food books? Mm, food books, but also but in fine press books. Fine press books. People okay. collect artist books about Isn't food. Okay. And th this has found its its way to the cookery school, to schools with culinary departments in Michigan. There's in one in Providence, a quite a good one in Providence that you might want to approach. There's the colophon. Oh, this is copy number six out of. <laughs> so yeah, to number it, you've you've got uh, thirty Chil blank chilies, yeah. and mm -hmm. you've covered hand colored each hand one. Colored the ones, yeah. So the, it's it's a mixture of woodcut, pochoir, and uh, right stenciling, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's I'm a printmaker at heart, but the question is, what am I going to do next? Because. The, I found a, a market for these right, things. Right, right. And you want to feed that market, so to speak, because there's an appetite for it. So I'm, I'm looking for ideas. Huh. Curry is another passion of mine. Being an Englishman, you see, we grew up on That's curry. That's right, after the pub. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, but thanks for sharing that. Uh, that, that it's been a pleasure. Yes. I'm sorry it's so cold here, but this no, is, not this a, is, not this is Iowa and it's winter. What do you expect? Well, thanks very much again. You're welcome.